0: Why, hello, welcome to The Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor of a church in the Pacific Northwest that meets uh, in Vancouver, Washington, just right across the river from Portland, Oregon. And uh, I'm right now in my home in Connecticut, and it's, a, it's been a beautiful day here. It's really great to be in New England in the fall. Uh, there are basically two times to be in New England, and that's in the late spring and, and peak foliage season and I try to be here for those times. But why do you care? (laughs) Anyway, that's enough about me. I've written some books. The latest book is In the House of Tom Bombadil. Let's kick it over to you, Tom.
1: I'm Tom Price. I teach uh, systematic theology, Christian ethics, and philosophy, one of the places at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I am in that beautiful connecticut (laughs) at this moment this is one of the most glorious times of year here so it is worth coming to see if you haven't done so (laughs) right right yeah but
0: the next person to introduce is a former new englander and he's now in indiana glenn introduce yourself and why don't you just go ahead and take us into the theme of the day because it's your
2: show Sure. Uh, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University, now living in Granger, Indiana, just a few miles from Notre Dame University. Uh, I am a ministry associate with Reflections Ministries and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I got some books out too. We are right around Halloween and so I decided that for my topic today, I would take on the, uh, the subject of witchcraft. And we're going to look at this historically, and we've got a couple of other directions we may end up going. It's kind of hard to tell with this group where things are actually going to end up in any conversation. <laughs> um, I should note that this is a, in a sense, a product of a class I used to teach at Central, uh, which was called Witches, Werewolves, and Vampires. Uh, substitu- uh, the subtitle was Superstition in Popular Religion in Early Modern Europe, and it was an excuse to talk about worldview and a whole bunch of other things uh, in a way that I thought would be guaranteed to attract interest. This is why they have um, the Christian
0: historian on the secular faculty, so we can talk about witches in the Middle Ages. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. And uh, uh I should also note that I hope that by the time this show goes up there will be a uh video up at the reflections website reflections.org on vampires that I'm doing uh entitled Vampires Before Dracula. So hopefully that will be up uh, I can't guarantee it because I don't know when this show is going up. But in any event, let's go to let's talk about witches. Um there are uh, I want to start with the idea of, of, you know, one of the standard things that gets, uh, accusations that gets thrown against Christians, particularly by neo-pagans, and that has to do with witch hunting and and witch trials and all that sort of thing. Now, the number, the amount of misinformation that has been out there is staggering. Um, so, for example, uh, there were PBS documentaries called The Burning Season that claimed that something like nine or six million witches were women were executed during the witch trials. And it's been referred to as a gender side, you know, an attempt to exterminate women and things like that. And fact to the matter is all this is nonsense. Uh, there, there were way too many executions during the witch trials Um, But it only numbered in the tens of thousands, not in the millions. And that's over 300 years across, well, yeah, about 300 years across all of Europe, Russia, the New World, Iceland, and so on. Okay, now that's way too many to begin with. uh, But it was nowhere near as severe as a lot of people think it was. Another thing that's worth noting is it didn't happen during the Middle Ages, Witch trials are a product of the Renaissance in the early modern period. You don't find them in the Middle Ages. Mm. Um, Interestingly enough, when you look at medieval magic uh, and witchcraft, you don't really see really almost anything in the way of witch trials. Most of the magic that is being practiced during the period consists of what I would call folk magic, you know, charms, things like that. Uh, you could argue that some of the things that Catholic priests were doing, blessing fields and stuff like that, might fall under the category of magic. But the serious attempts at magic were actually conducted primarily by clerics, so, so uh, people in the clergy. So let's, <laughs> so let's stop here and just reflect for a moment on something
0: I've observed. We've talked about a little bit uh, about it in the past, and that is these— I guess urban legends for want of a better term, that just don't yeah. die. It doesn't matter how right. much information you throw at them. The classic example is people in the Middle Ages didn't know the world was round. We know that they did know, at least educated people knew that the world is round. And people for time out of mind knew that. But you even you 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 still have, you know, people that you would you sort of assume should know better because of their education who say it almost like this is an obvious thing. Everybody knows that people in the medieval world was so stupid. They thought the world was flat. And and like I said, it doesn't matter how much, how much you do uh, to sort of correct the misunderstanding. It just continues to propagate itself. And with regard to this, that, it was the medieval world where witchcraft was practiced. It was six million. Now that that number rings a bell.
2: <laughs> it, was picked, it was picked to compare it to the Holocaust. That's exactly yes. it.
0: Because what they really want to do, uh, it seems to me, is to at least uh, kind of create the impression that the the genocide – of the 20th century, in in every totalitarian regime, is just kind of a matter of course. It's just this is the way things have always been. Just think about the Middle Ages and the witches, and how many women yeah. were killed then. And the Christians started it, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and and like I said, it doesn't matter how many times you correct these people on this stuff. Uh, they they just my my theory is is that it's t- it's too useful for their rhetoric for their agenda. They won't let it go because people are still willing to believe it. It's only when people are kind of broadly educated and realize
2: this is a bunch of nonsense that it will finally go away. Yeah. Well, being fair, a lot of the the uh, people that are involved in Wicca, and we'll talk more about this later, um, they're acknowledging the history here. They're, they're recognizing that, yeah, this was really exaggerated and it wasn't what has been presented. Now, I'm sure that there are some of them that are still holding to the old myths. But being fair, there are a number of them that that have acknowledged that that you know the 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 urban legends are just that—they're urban legends. Um, but bouncing back to the Middle Ages, one of the things that I think is is kind of most amusing is that the most serious efforts at uh, magic in the Middle Ages, high magic uh, in particular were done by members of the clergy because they were educated and all of that. And a lot of it consisted of what was then referred to as necromancy. Necromancy technically refers to summoning the spirits of the dead to get information or something like that. They used necromancy in a broader sense of summoning any kind of spirit, whether it be a spirit of the dead or demons. And the clergy would try to do this to get information, to get knowledge, um, sometimes to find hidden treasure, all of those kinds of things. Now, there's biblical uh, material that
0: they could draw on to say this is something that can be done. The Witch of Endor, of right. course.
2: The Witch of Endor with uh, summoning Samuel. Right. So that's what that's where you see in the Middle Ages this stuff going on. It's not the church. I mean, the church doesn't really approve of this. Um, And as a matter of fact, it will condemn necromancy in no uncertain terms in the condemnations of 1277 um, from a synod meeting in Paris, which is one of the hotbeds of this, because that's where the University of Paris was. This is where all the educated people were.
0: More evil things coming from Paris.
2: (laughs) I thought you were going to say coming from universities. Now, here you just... just, No, anyway. Um, (laughs) Okay, so... So what's happening with witchcraft? Well, it turns out that witch hunting really begins, and witch trials really begin taking off in the late 1400s. And this is a period that we call the Renaissance uh, in Italy. And it really gets kicked off because there were a couple of Dominicans out there uh, named Kramer and Sprenger, who had developed a theory of witchcraft, which we'll talk about in a bit. And there was a woman accused of witchcraft in Germany, and these two showed up as expert witnesses against her. And they, they didn't know anything about this woman, but they testified that since she was accused of witchcraft, she had to be guilty and she must have done all of these incredibly lurid and obscene things, and they got laughed out of court. They were so upset by this that they wrote a book called The Malleus Maleficarum, The Hammer of Witches which then got approved by the pope, and this became sort of a base witch-hunting manual. And here's the trick. A lot of the things we think we know about witchcraft come out of, or what people thought about witchcraft, come out of the malleus. And as as a result, this may not reflect the reality of what was happening on the ground, but it does reflect what Kramer and Springer thought. So let's just stop here a second, because this is this is fascinating. I didn't know this.
0: So this court in Germany had the good sense to laugh at these guys, yep. which I think is a vindication of common sense, <laughs> a vindication of we know this woman. Um, we think that what she's being accused of here is not Grounded in
2: reality, or what, how did that work? Well, they, they may have thought that she was guilty of practicing maleficia, which technically means evil doing in terms of its literal meaning, but it implies evil doing from magic. They may have thought that was true, but Kramer and Sprenger didn't help the accusation because they added a whole bunch of lurid details that they had no way of knowing, you know, even if they were true. And it's all of this lurid stuff that they throw in from their conception of witchcraft that got them laughed out of court. So, now with regard to this lurid
0: material, are you going to get into maybe a little bit?
2: uh, Sure. Okay, great. I'd like to know a little bit. That's where this is going. So, this is what's going to kick off witch hunting. And witch hunting is going to vary across Europe. Sort of the heartland of this is actually Western Germany into Switzerland. Um, eastern France, that area has the most intense witch hunting. But it's going to be occurring sort of all over to varying degrees. Great. That's where my ancestors are from. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I knew there was something about you, Chris. Um, so, So what ends up happening here is you will have, well, What Kramer and Sprenger present and what gets sort of accepted in the popular imagination about witchcraft is what historian Brian Levack calls the cumulative concept of witchcraft. In order to get the witch trials to happen, you need two things. You need this cumulative concept and you need changes in legal procedure. So the cumulative concept says that uh, witches aren't just people who practice magic. Uh, Because, of course, no human being has the ability to do magic themselves. Instead, they make a pact with the devil. And they will sell their soul to the devil, basically, in return for power. So you've got this idea of a pact with the devil. You have the idea of, uh, actually, Levac doesn't expressly talk about this, but you have this idea that there is a sort of an underground conspiracy going on of all these networks of witches that are, that are in league with the devil and have, have a pact with the devil. They, and this gives them power, and this is how they, they can do magic. Along with that, there's the idea of a witch's Sabbath, where the witches travel to a location and engage in all kinds of obscene activities there. To get to the Sabbath, they fly. This is where the broomstick thing comes <laughs> in. Um, and the magic frequently involves killing children, using fat from, from sacrificed babies for ointments and, and things like that. Um, and then in some cases, you will also see the idea of metamorphosis, the idea that the witches can change shape. Okay, So all of these things emerge as the idea. Now, one obvious question is, why would someone sell their soul to the devil? Well, Kramer and Sprenger is answering. Now, remember, these are Dominican friars. They're celibate men. They argue it's because women are sexually insatiable. <laughs> Okay. And particularly widows and things like that who've lost their husbands, who are sexually experienced, these are people who are going to be most likely to turn to witchcraft, although any women woman might do it. Because the, the fact of the matter is, uh, no matter how much of a stud you are, sooner or later, guys will wear out. <laughs> and the trick is, demons won't. <laughs> so they get into this pact with the devil, basically because... They're sexually insatiable and want to have sex in, in sort of an unlimited way, and demons can do this for them. So now, of course, this, this is, is the kind of lurid stuff that Kramer and Sprenger talk about. Remember, they're celibate friars. Right. <laughs> so there, there's you know a lack of kind of knowledge based on
0: experience. Um, and it's, I think, understandable why maybe contemporary feminists would use this as a kind of indicator that men, uh, are, you know, uh, against them (laughs) or against women in general, or maybe a particular kind of man. Um, I think that that particular, um, subject is maybe one that is not the family friendly sort of thing that we're known for
2: here at the podcast, (laughs) Well, we, you know, that that's as much as I want to say about this. This is not like a light going into. <laughs> but, but I guess the
0: thing I want to kind of move to is is when we think about an enchanted world. We've talked about this many times. You know, disenchantment, um, and we've generally thought about disenchantment as a negative thing because we miss the positive things. That enchantment brings with it or in, it entails, but there is a dark side to enchantment. Right. So yeah. everything mean if everything means something, then everything can be uh, misused as well as acknowledged as being meaningful. So uh, g- getting back to your, your, your comments regarding magical uh, sort of uh, events or incantations or acts or whatever. So why would they use, say, the fat of a baby? Well, I think that the sort of the sacramental imagination, not saying that sacraments, strictly Mm -hmm. speaking in terms of the church's sacraments, but just basically the idea that, or the, the thought that everything connects to something powerful and unseen would imply that there's something to the fat of a baby that is uh, powerful in a metaphysical sense.
2: Right, and that's exactly and and it is such a an obscenity, such a blasphemy that of course that's the kind of thing that you would use in black magic. Right, so you know we've we've all seen those.
0: Um, those uh, uh portrayals of witchcraft where you have got and eye of newt and mm-hmm. toe of frog mm-hmm. and all this mm-hmm. kind of thing and we all laugh about that because you know we all think today that these things are meaningless but that's not the case if you live in a world that's suffused with meaning and everything is connected to some unseen reality mm-hmm. If everything is right. connected to some unseen reality, then if you take those things and rip them away from their proper use, the proper place in the order of things and recombine them in ways that are intended to further your interests or whatever, based on their meanings, that's where you get the hocus pocus element. And that's why it's credible. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not uh, just,
1: you know, people that are, are, are just, they're not just credulous. And, and there, there you're dealing with a time where people are more <clears throat> impacted by the consequences. Um, they're not buffered um, the way we are. And so, I mean, here, here you have fr- from the ancient world up to today, apart from places that have been really uh, shaped by technology, is the vitality of life and life giving. And that certain things, um, I mean, the Old Testament, for example, is filled with the, the, the ordered pattern of creation Blessing and flourishing, the the introduction of something bad to to break that down. Sin brings forth death, non-flourishing, blessing, curse, um, and so so the connectedness of of procreation and life and human sexuality and all of these things. Children, um, their significance in flourishing and blessing and health. Um, versus the severe consequences of something um, dark that enters into that. And so you can see in imaginations infused with with the consequences of this um, can can over accentuate some of those things into into these kind of caricatures and and uh, definitions. And I think that's where, you know what you would say is you know an overreading of, of certain things. We would say from today's perspective, but for them it was very real. And and I'm sure that once it hits the imagination like that and spreads, it can lead to fren- frenzy.
2: Yeah. Now the things to remember is that the only place where these witches existed were in Kramer and Springer's mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody is really doing this stuff. Yeah. Now. I want to move from the theory that's Kramer and Springer. It's going to evolve over time. Mm -hmm. It's going to change quite a bit. A lot of the core stays similar, but what what you see happening in practice is that in much of Europe, women are the primary victims of witch hunting. Oh, by the well, I won't get into the legal procedures. There are changes in legal procedure, particularly the use of judicial torture, adapted from Roman legal codes that factor into this as well. Uh, The pact with the devil makes witchcraft heresy, and the fact that it's heresy makes it a capital offense. And actually, it's considered treason, which is why judicial torture can be used, and so on. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here. But what's interesting is when you actually look at the records of witch trials, in most of Europe, witchcraft is primarily a crime that women are accused of. In some places, like Iceland, it's mostly men. Um, In Paris, if I remember right, it's roughly 50-50. So it isn't exclusively a crime for women, although it is predominantly in much of Europe. So the question we have is, why is that? Now, if you go to Kramer and Springer, you've got an answer. But the curious thing here is that uh, there's a historian named Robin Briggs who did a book called Witches and Neighbors. And what he found is that I'm not sure whether it's a he or a she, actually. Robin, what are you gonna do? But but what Briggs found is that most of the accusations of witchcraft came from women accusing other women. Hmm. So this raises uh, the question. Are, yeah. So this raises the question, are we dealing with misogyny? In, in one sense, you know, you can say these are women who have internalized the misogynistic attitude of their culture and so on. We're always to blame. That, we
0: knew that would be. <laughs> yeah, we're always yeah. to blame even if all the actual
2: perpetrators are women. <laughs> right. Now, now here, here's the trick. The thing that actually triggers most witchcraft accusations is stuff that happens in the domestic sphere. Huh. The cow stops giving milk. A husband falls off the roof and breaks his leg. Those sorts of things are what lead to most accusations of witchcraft. The domestic sphere, by the time you're getting into this period, women are being pushed out of public roles and being confined increasingly to the domestic sphere. When something goes wrong in the domestic sphere, women are the ones who see it. And one other important characteristic of witchcraft accusations is you always accuse people in your own circle. Thus, if you're in an area that has both Catholics and Protestants in it, Catholics accuse other Catholics of witchcraft, Protestants accuse other Protestants. It doesn't cross denominational lines. Interesting. You Hmm. accuse people within your own sphere. And the reason for that has to do with the, the concept of witchcraft as this underground secret community of traitors. If you're a Catholic and that guy over there is a Protestant, he's not a secret traitor. He's an obvious enemy. Hmm. So let, you're looking for the secret traitors. So you accuse people in your own circle. So let let me just kind of step back and
0: think about at least, or at least introduce a couple of things, a couple of ideas. One is, isn't it true that there are traitors in the world? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, isn't it interesting? that many of the, what I obviously from the outside looking in see uh, with regard to neo-paganism, isn't it, isn't it interesting that some of the neo-pagan ideas actually have their genesis in these very w- witch trials that are actually not founded on uh, kind of um, sound reasoning and so forth.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the great irony is that the people who identify themselves as witches now and talk about the persecution of their predecessors in the Middle Ages, the only proof that there were any witches in Europe came from the accusers and people who confessed under torture. You see, there's no other evidence of this. That's my point. I mean, basically,
0: they're saying the accusers were right our heroes actually were traitors and in league with the devil. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they would
2: argue that, that the in league with the devil was wrong, but that's, uh, that's another. And at some point there would be a fine, I
1: mean, this is the other thing. And of course there, these, you know, this work of, you know, um, of these two Dominicans and others, they clearly has things that would uh, resonate at that time with being an extreme kind of, um, practice to accuse them of it, but because there is a lot of overlap culturally with folk medicine, folklore, I'm talking in the, in the general sure. popular and even in the church and even in the academy at points, um, it, you really have to articulate, I mean, you really have to pinpoint something as specifically, uh, the, the, you know, the meaning and the symbol have to really be, be strongly emphasized to find someone to be guilty of you know you know communing with the devil if you will by doing those practices because sometimes that you know you think of folk medicine that kind of borders on some of that kind of stuff anyway and it was kind of regular practice even amongst you know christian yeah. households me, you know,
0: me mean kind at- of like homeopathy today <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, yeah when you when you look at um for example, in Geneva, I believe this was in Geneva, one of the things that they were really trying to stamp out were superstitious practices like saying the Lord's Prayer when you were applying a bandage on someone because that would make it more effective in healing them. <laughs> you know, you, you, you see yeah. things like that. The, the, the border between mm-hmm. what we would describe as superstitious religious practices and folk magic is very, very thin in the period. So,
0: yeah, I guess, I guess
2: something I'd like to
0: follow up on here with regard to that is we live in a, in a period of recovery, revival um, of many things, both good and bad. We're kind of in the early phases of it. There is a disillusionment with uh, enlightenment approaches to just about anything, which means that people are in the, we're doing what people during the Renaissance were doing, but we're doing it in a different way. So during the Renaissance, they look back to, you know, the classical world. We're trying to recover things from that time, bring it forward. We're doing the same thing, but we're going back to the medieval world. Or to what we imagine the medieval world was. But that I think that's the thing. So... Maybe that's also what happened in the Renaissance. <laughs> but, yeah, but, yeah, it is. But yeah, but but the, but the thing is, is is that we see sort of the cutting edge in terms of young people and their interests. I'm not talking about stuff going on in, say, the academy and the sciences. Although maybe that's yeah. also in you know the, the sort of the offing. But for a lot of young folks. They have zero interest in STEM. Um, what they're interested in is uh, these things that we're talking about right now, and they believe in it in these things. And some are looking back, uh, trying to recover, say, the bright side or the the light side of this pre-modern outlook, uh, this enchanted realm. But there are many others in Wicca and so forth, who are interested in power and what was believed to be accessible in the past and was lost. And they're trying to valorize in a weird way these condemned people who perhaps were not engaged in anything, they were just falsely accused, but now they're actually lionized in such a way so as to become kind of I don't know, saints in a way is a hagiography that's completely maybe out of touch with the actual situation on the ground. And it's all being done by Wiccans and neo-pagans and that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, I I think that that was certainly the case not long ago. uh, Well, not long ago, a few decades ago, maybe. Um, Increasingly, Wiccans are sort of realizing that their own history starts in the 20th century. Gerald Gardner and people like that. Alistair Crowley. Um, so they're beginning to they're beginning to acknowledge that and recognize that, and not really talk as much. At least the the ones that I've been reading, they're not really trying to connect themselves with medieval witchcraft. Um, but there was certainly a, a, a time when that was true. Um, what I find interesting, yeah. Well, again, first of all, worth noting, Wicca, the modern witchcraft, is a 20th century invention. Um, yeah. Again, Alistair Crowley uh, is one of the key figures there, and then through Gerald Gardner, it's Gardner's the one who really gets Wicca off the ground, um, and then there are offshoots of that. But what I find particularly interesting right now, in light of of you know what you're saying, is that I don't think students in the university, certainly not at Central, in my classes, I don't think they're quite as much. Uh, Naturalists or materialists, um, as they were n- a few decades ago.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, as an example, when I was teaching uh, the one of the variants on the witches, werewolves, and vampires class, I had students come up to me and say, "Yeah, you know, I had someone throw a curse on me, and I had to go to this particular person in my apartment complex who knew how to deal with these things to get this curse lifted." And they were very serious. Yeah. I, I've run into a number of students who just take belief in in magic in in witchcraft, not in the medieval sense, but in sort of a modern sense of the word. They take that very seriously and believe in it very seriously. Uh, you know, it, and for them, it is embedded in their worldview. This is a matter of course.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you know just a curious historical point. What time uh you were talking about the 14th century how much would the impact of the via moderna at all have already started to infiltrate the, the reason i ask is because you definitely do have an unleashing you know as you say as as kind of occam and and after you do have an unleashing of 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 forces um but i don't know how long
2: after it actually enters those rooms yep. i mean, It's the late 1400s, not the late 14th century, so it's a good century. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. I I was
1: thinking you were, yeah, okay.
2: Yeah, I think what's happening here is a couple of things, you know, in terms of the historical thing. First of all, you do get this cumulative concept of witchcraft. But I think it takes off primarily because the late 15th into the 16th century into the 17th century is a period where Europe is very, very seriously disrupted in a lot of ways. It's yeah. not just the Reformation.
1: Yeah. You've got
2: things like the price revolution, where there's a rapid inflation of prices for food and agricultural commodities, what stagnation of other kinds of prices that ends up hitting a lot of people really hard, Um there's, uh, there are a range of different kinds of wars that are taking place. There's the effect of the Reformation. Um, there, there are all kinds of things that are going on that are creating a general level of societal stress. Mm-hmm. And one way of dealing with the stress is to look for scapegoats. Now, again, most of the people that you're, well, most of the situation that we're looking at is stuff that's happening not on sort of these large scale levels. It's at the domestic level. You know, it's the level of daily life. You know, it's my cow has stopped giving milk. Why did this happen? Oh, that old lady down the street, and it's frequently old ladies who are accused, (laughs) that old lady down the street came to the house and asked for milk, and I didn't give it to her, and she cursed on her way out, and now suddenly my cow isn't giving milk. Yeah, now- She must be a witch. Now, from a modern perspective, uh, this is like
0: a trivial incident, but from the perspective of a of an agricultural society or people within an agricultural, this is a pretty Where major problem. Yeah. is a pretty major problem. And, right, yeah. and, and we're all, we're all prone to blame. I mean, whenever something goes wrong in my life, I'll, I've got a confession to make. I immediately look around for someone to blame. <laughs> That's what we see. That's with, why I moved out of Connecticut. Yes. <laughs> but we see with Adam and Eve, but yeah. you know, you get to a place. Hopefully, when you're mature enough to say that's foolish, I shouldn't try to find people to blame. I just my own stupid choice, or maybe it's just something that I not, has nothing to do with anyone. Um, but uh,
2: it's 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 a human tendency to look for someone to blame. Yeah. Now here's here's the curious thing. Let's talk about that old woman down the street. When I was growing up, we had one.
1: (laughs) And we did, some. And I I, I, I won't tell
2: you those stories. But sometimes the old woman down the street actually believes that she's got some kind of power. Sometimes they will play this up because it's a way of, you know, they're defenseless. Yeah, You know, the the poorest households in this era were the smallest households. The smaller the household, the poorer you were. These are old women who are widows who are living alone. They are on the bottom of the heap. Yeah, yeah. If you can develop a reputation of having some kind of power and maybe even believe you've got it yourself, this gives you leverage over your neighbors so they're more likely to help you. So sometimes when these people are accused, they will say, yeah. I've got, you know, I have no idea how I got it, but I've got this kind of power because because of coincidences or whatever that led them to believe it, or it's something that they actually played up themselves. Well, let's stop and think about this.
0: You, you've framed it in a very generous way. I'm willing to consider that it's not so generous. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that we tend to think that power is exclusively something that resides in the domain of of, say, money. Or physical force. So people who have a lot of money or who actually can command physical you know, coercion to bring about the ends that they desire, we, we more or less have to concede, oh, these people are powerful. Everybody knows that, and we resent them. But we all know that human beings being human beings will look for a, an angle, an edge, anywhere they can, and we see it in our society today. Our society has been thoroughly suffused with Christian morality to the point that even non-Christians will use it to leverage uh, in the, in sort of to serve their own interests in a way that has nothing to do with Christian faith. And I'm speaking of, you know, of, you know, critical theory and things of that nature where, uh, and I think that's to a large extent what's going on with, any kind of Marxist analysis of society. And, and Nietzsche was onto this, you know, he, he was a, he was really good at sort of seeing that just because you're poor doesn't mean you're pure. We have that sense that, okay, purity and poverty go together. That's not necessarily the case. Some of the most conniving, selfish, small minded Mm -hmm. people I've known in my life have been, have been materially poor. And have yeah. used every angle that they can to get uh, their way, and they're willing to lie. They're willing to use your sympathy against you, yeah. and maybe that's something. It has something to do with what's going on with what you just described.
2: Right. Yeah. In some cases, there's no doubt that that these are people who are being manipulative. You know that that see the advantage in this and will use it for their benefit. But. Given the confessions that we get, uncoerced confessions, incidentally, that we get when witch trials start taking place, some of these old women seem to have actually believed it. Because confessing to witchcraft is not really a healthy thing to do. Okay, so what ends up happening is these old women get this reputation, and then something triggers witch trials in the area, and immediately they get accused and they get hauled in. And that's when we get the the young, sometimes uncoerced confession. So it's like, yeah, well, yeah, um, I have no idea how it happened, but I seem to have this power. So good. This is, you know, in other cases, I am sure people are being manipulative. They're trying to use this deliberately to to get any angle they possibly can, because frankly, they need all the help they can get. And if they can can convince people that they've got some kind of supernatural power, that means that when they ask for something, they're going to get it. Well, that's, that's true. But, but you're, I I think you're also, what you're getting at
0: is that these people, these women in this case, old women, if, if we're limiting ourselves to to them are morally compromised. So I've known many old women who are dear, generous, sympathetic, matronly people that everyone loves. I mean, (laughs) everyone loves, they go out of their way to make sure that they're taken care of and, and,
2: uh, they're cherished. We're not talking about those women. <laughs>
0: no,
2: we're we're talking about the, we're talking about the woman who lived down the street from me, who all the kids were convinced was dangerous and was a witch. <laughs> That's the person we're talking about, yeah. not your kindly old grandmother type. So, and of course, it it extends beyond them. But this is where your stereotype of the witch as the old ugly crone comes from. It comes from the fact that these were the these are people who are marginalized. They're the first people who are accused. And this creates this image that we have, the stereotypical image of the old hag as a witch. <laughs> so uh, now there, there's a lot more we can do with with witchcraft in the period, but um like I said, there's, there are issues in legal procedure. There's there's the way the, the image of witchcraft evolves. There's, you know, when you're getting into New England witchcraft, you've got the idea of spectral evidence that some people can sort of see into the supernatural realm and can give testimony on the basis of that. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of things that we can look at. But witch hunting essentially dies down largely because of the growth of, well, this is one of the positive things perhaps that comes out of the Enlightenment that a lot of these assumptions that are out there begin to be questioned. So I've got a, I've got a a little exclusively enlightenment, but that's part of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'd like to, to to put a fly in the ointment here a little bit. Um, Maybe there were some witches and maybe they actually uh, in some cases had some power. Um, The witch of Endor is not, you know, uh, in the period that we're discussing, but she uh, is a real, uh, person according to Scripture, and if we uh, believe that Scripture is authoritative, that means that this is a possibility. So this is one of those things. I mean, that, that makes this so challenging. Uh, what makes this so challenging is how do we verify? How do we know uh, what is the case in a particular situation? Situation. So when we think about, say, demon possession. Um, did demons stop possessing people uh, just because we stopped believing in demon possession? In other words, the the enlightenment occurs. No one believes in demon possession anymore. uh, But if demons are real, uh, then demons potentially, now, maybe for their own good reasons, they're not possessing people. Maybe maybe they're working with the system. Maybe they're thinking, oh, we've got a different angle that we're going to pursue here. <laughs> uh, they don't believe in us anyway. Let's, let's encourage that. <laughs> structural <laughs> possession. Interestingly <laughs> enough. Structural possession.
2: <laughs> the, the, um, during the witch trials, they recognized the possibility of demonic possession, or what we would today we call a demonization. Right. And that was always sharply distinguished from witchcraft. If someone is demonized, they're a victim. Yeah. if they're a witch, they're a perpetrator. Well, that's an interesting
0: thing to, to to note, and one of the things that I just came across recently is is a uh, a discussion that was led by, or actually was a presentation led by, or presented by Paul Kingsnorth, the uh, the UK based writer who of uh, fiction and poetry. He's kind of like the UK's version of Wendell Berry, I guess. You know, he's he's bought uh, a small piece of land on the Irish coast and is farming it. And uh, he kind of is well known in kind of the front porch of public circles in places like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, he, uh, in the course of this uh, presentation, he was addressing the subject of transhumanism and he's, he's against it. <laughs> <laughs> <You're trans? laughs> so he's, he's a Christian. He's, he's Orthodox. Mm-hmm. He's got a fascinating background. He's, he was a pretty radical, uh, environmentalist, kind of an Earth firster, who lost faith in the environmental Man. movement and uh, turned to the Christian faith, and he's he's a remarkable story. But anyway, he's he as he's talking about transhumanism and talking about and specifically artificial intelligence, he gets into you know the the quest to make God that some people in that world. Uh, you know say that they're up to or they're they're trying to do and he says well maybe they're not actually making god maybe they're actually making kind of the thing that de- the demonic can inhabit so he's that idea of strength yeah that's exactly it he's, he's he's holding out the prospect that that there really is an agenda being pursued here that's not human but it's not divine it's a demonic mm-hmm. agenda and that AI is actually the vehicle to, that uh, the, the, the demonic would like to inhabit to reintroduce itself to the world. So maybe, maybe one of the reasons why we see less uh, demonic possession or at least behavior attributed to demonic possession is because demons really do need to be believed in in order to inhabit you or to possess you. Or you, you get what I'm getting at. I don't. I'm not. I'm not a demonologist. I'm not saying that yeah, I know I, anything about I, this. I'm just speculating. I don't
2: think that's necessarily true. Got but um, but yeah, I, I do believe that just like sin infects all human systems, I believe that demonic activity works in all human systems. And I've often wondered about the connection between, you know, partly because of C.S. Lewis, but I've often wondered about the connection between AI and things like that and uh, and uh, the demonic. Um Now, it's worth noting, in terms of whether or not any of these people accused of witchcraft were actually guilty, they certainly were not guilty of the kind of witchcraft that was envisioned in the period. Hmm. That, I think, is clear. That is is a product of the imagination of Kramer and Sprenger and the people that they influenced. It's interesting, by the way, that if you read ahead to something like the, uh, the Compendium Maleficarum by Francesco Guazzo. Um, a lot of the magical devices he discusses in there show up in Harry Potter. Interesting. <laughs> that, yeah. That's actually where she got the ideas for a lot of these. Interesting. Um, but, but in any event, um, I assigned once some readings on witchcraft and so on in a class that I was doing on history of Christianity. Um, students needed some extra credit, so I gave them some primary source readings around Halloween on this subject. And I had one student from Africa, and these readings thoroughly confused him because he said, This isn't what witches are. Because in his society, witches are very real and very present. And in point of fact, I can tell you from a lot of people I know who have a lot of experience in Africa, in traditional societies, there are people who have powers. Yeah, it was, uh, well, it's it was very real. It's interesting
1: because I, I just visited Cartagena, Colombia, and you have a strong African influence there. Um, and uh, you still see a very deep connection to a lot of the, the dance and ritual. But you do see a, 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 a strong practice of you know the, the kind of folk medicines and the blessings and curse. And it's, it's very tangible, um that that kind of uh that kind of thing a, a connectedness in in a way a very strong connectedness closer even to the biblical world for example they get out in the morning just local guy casting nets off the shore to pull the fish in every morning um to where the biblical world makes sense but also very much a, a world in which you would have um which is you would have um, spirituality tied to folk practices that would conflict with with uh, you know a, a Christian understanding of the good and 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 truth and still very much vibrant in practice so I've, i i read as you guys know not too long ago
0: Matthias Desmet's book on the psychology of totalitarianism one of his arguments in the book is that the totalitarian sort of option that we see exercised in places like Soviet Russia, Nazi Germany, is a kind of natural sort of consequence of materialism and the mechanistic outlook. And he, uh, in his argument against totalitarianism, is noting that science is coming to the kind of the limits of its ability to measure. uh, And what it discovers at that sort of frontier is a world that is much more kind of mystical in character than it is kind of commonsensical materialist in the way that most people think. So uh, that doesn't mean that physicists are, you know, mystics, but they're more, I guess, open to mystery than generally people assume they are. But he what he does with that is he says, you know, there are all, there are all sorts of things that go on kind of on the frontiers of science, which seem to make a psychosomatic connection. I think he, of course, because he's a psychologist, uh, tends to think in those terms, not in the ways that we're talking about sort of ontologically. Is there really a spiritual realm out there that is exercising some kind of influence in ours? But he does note that, you know, there are many places in the world where, say, witch doctors and so forth really do have efficacious a power to help people uh, get past uh, their diseases or what have you. And what's going on with that? There, There is a kind of connection between the spirit, he's, he's yeah. saying, and the body. We know that. We, we've all met people who are just yeah. s- sort of spiritually in a bad place, and it has a way of manifesting itself in their, not just their uh, countenance, but their health. You know, they're, they're it's like they're under a curse, yeah. Um, now, again, the psych you know the psychologists will try to do happy self talk to kind of address these things, but
2: we all know that that's kind of empty, and we don't yeah, or see it's a placebo effect. They believe it's going to work, so it does. Yeah, you know, there are all kinds of ways of, 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 of explaining around it.
0: Yeah, but the, but that's just but, the, they they don't really know. They don't yeah. really know.
2: You know, I, I heard a, um, a a Mars Hill audio decades ago <laughs> in which. Um, They were talking either to someone or about someone who was saying, all right, you go into the middle of the jungle in Papua New Guinea or somewhere, and there's someone there who is a witch doctor and who believes in the spirits and all of that sort of thing. Okay, you've got that guy. You have an anthropologist who goes there and does a completely secularized analysis of what's going on. This is what they believe. This is why, um, you know, there's really no magic or anything else like that going on. They just have a, an intense knowledge of herb lore, and on top of that, there's a um, uh, there, there's a belief system in place that that they can affect people psychosomatically and so on. And he says, of these two, we are probably closer to the anthropologist but the truth is closer to the witch doctor because the bible tells us that these things are real and if you take the bible seriously you have to take them seriously
0: and i've always found the psychosomatic explanation to be kind of a god of the gaps kind of thing or maybe the materialism of the gaps (laughs) No, no why why does the psychosomatic thing work they yeah. don't know right. why. They'll, they'll they'll try to re- reduce it to some kind of I don't know, you know, endorphins that are being released or something like that. But yeah.
1: they don't they don't
2: yeah. actually know, right? Why do placebos work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't we don't really have any idea there. Um, I guess I, I, I guess where where I want to go on this too is that a lot of the kinds of things I get from people on the ground in Africa are not things that can be explained psychologically even if you accept psychosomatic or placebo mm-hmm. effect or things like that they're not always things dealing with healing. There are some there are some really inexplicable things that I have firsthand accounts of from different people. Um, then there's the anthropologist I read this from an anthropologist who was in um, the Amazon I believe it was. And it turns out that there were certain plant compounds that, when used in combination, were very effective at healing certain kinds of things. And all of these things were known to the local uh, witch doctors or shaman or whatever you call them. And when they asked them how they knew these things work together, their response was because they sing together in the moonlight. <laughs> <laughs> what (laughs) they are obviously perceiving something that for whatever reason is invisible to us,
0: you know, and it worked. Yeah. I I know I've known many scientists, some of whom are world-class and when you get together with them in a private setting uh, and just kind of explore these sorts of matters, uh, you discover a much greater openness than you might assume is the case. Now, when they're writing for peer review or they're trying to make their case in Get a... Su-
1: yeah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, they limit
0: themselves to the material, to the, to the cause and effect that they can demonstrate over and over again. But many of the people I've known over the years are open to, we just don't know. Um, there's just a lot more out there to reality than we, than we really are able to grasp and so there some of some of them are obviously materialists and reductionists and and are completely closed to some of these matters but far more are open than people i think suspect and in some very surprising places like MIT <laughs> or Harvard yeah. yeah
1: that's right and it's all how a lot of times how they 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 perceive it i mean just 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 Th- the fact that they see any kind of intelligibility tied to what they do as scientists already shows they believe in something more than than just uh, sense, you know, I- you know, information. Um, and, and so, I mean, they're already oriented. To uh, uh, something fuller than than oftentimes what a reductive materialism or even a, a kind of expansive materialism will give them, but then you d- you know it's interesting something we didn't really talk about, and I know we don't have a lot of time left. But right around the time, I mean, you're talking when modernity and the Enlightenment really start to take off, um, and and you start to see a, a you know a kind of um, kind of a, a, a dismissal of anything that can't be really um, either shown a, a strong rational argument for or reduced to something that can be proven with science, you do start to see this increase, um, this dualism develop uh, among the intelligentsia a lot of time in secret of things like the Masons um, start to develop, which which from what I understand is still really a, a, a really the place to be if you're in europe um if you're you know want to get somewhere this is what my reports i hear from people living there and then you also have groups you know the seances at the the dinner these things were these things were practiced um yeah
0: yeah the seances in new england amongst the brahmin class right
1: yeah (laughs) yeah and and you, you do have this kind of um, what you w- would see a, this kind of uh, detached spiritualism, um, if you will uh, that that grows and I, and I think you know you don't you don't have the same you don't have we've talked about this before you don't really have a disenchantment you have a, another way of locating it, um, and and I think the I think a lot of times we tend to still think. Because of the impact of materialism, of spirituality in that kind of way. And therefore we don't we don't recog- we often don't recognize older visions of the intertwinedness of the spiritual, the intellectual, and the and the material.
2: Yeah, I, I think that that you're exactly right there, that what's happening with the rise of spiritism and things like that is an attempt to get at the same things that the various, uh, well, not the specific witchcraft things, but the the things surrounding magic and such um necromancy, summoning the dead, that's exactly yeah, what you're yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, but couched in a more scientific way because that's what the ethos of the period is. But what you were what you were doing is fundamentally no different from what people in the past did, at least in these areas. Again, not in terms of, Witchcraft is understood in, uh, in the early modern period, but in terms of a lot of these other kinds of magical practices. Ouija boards are a way of trying to get knowledge from beyond the grave or from the spirit world, which is what necromancy was about in the Middle Ages among the clergy. So I'd like to just kind of
0: bring this in for a landing, as I sometimes put it. <laughs> but, but so we've, we've seen you with both of your hats, the historian hat, uh, which has been kind of the, the, the sort of the mode that you are in, in sort of the, the debunking mode. You know, this is not really what happened. This is what actually happened. Let me explain to you why these things occurred the way they did. And then we've had you in your missions uh, sort of Africa mode where there are really, you know, spiritual shamans out there. There really are witches out there. So anyway, so we've, we've gotten this. So there are some things in the past that we uh, don't really uh, think about properly, but there still is a reality that we can say is the case. Uh, Now here we are modern or postmodern or however we want to put it. People, what's your advice, Glenn, when it comes to witchcraft today, How, how should we think about our own position in this
2: time? Um, Let's go to the past again really quick. The idea of witchcraft as it was understood in the period uh, of the witch trials and the witch crazes and all that is utter nonsense. That was, I would argue, a ploy by Satan to distract us from other things. Um, It is clear from Scripture that Satan, demons, evil spirits, which are not necessarily the same thing— Um, That that these things are real, that they are active in the world, that sometimes they act overtly and sometimes covertly, but they do act. And we need to be very much aware of this, and we need to take it very seriously. Um, My experience suggests that, except among Pentecostals, most American Christians have absolutely no place in their worldview for this kind of stuff. We need to take it seriously. I think we need to take seriously the possibility that you raised that that the demonic is not just the sort of primitive stuff that we might normally think of it, but that it may actually be connected to things like AI and stuff along those lines. Again, Lewis suggested this in that hideous strength. Um, and basically what we need to do is again, recover a supernatural worldview and recognize that this stuff is very, very much real. Um, and that in many parts of the world, it's overt here. It tends to be covert, but I think it's coming more and more out from, uh, uh from the shadows and becoming more obvious and more blatant, uh, as evidenced by my students. Yeah, I was just driving down the
0: street, maybe a couple months back here in Manchester, Connecticut, uh, went by the New Age, whatever kind of store, and there were a bunch of ladies in long robes dancing in a circle outside. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What was that, what they were doing? Uh, I don't know, but I'm not sure I want to (laughs) know.
2: Well, you know, and and it's easy for us to look at that and laugh at it and say, isn't that silly, as if that actually does anything. The problem is, why do we assume it doesn't? That's right. You know, I, I have run into a lot of cases where people playing with Ouija boards opened up their their homes to all kinds of really stinking weird stuff.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, or or other kinds of things. You 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 mess around with things like this, you might find yourself entangled in more than you expect. We can't assume that what they're doing does not affect anything on the spiritual world. We have to take it seriously. And even on the material plane. And even on the material plane. It opens up doorways from everything that I've read on this. It opens up doorways for these invisible beings to affect the visible world. Yeah. And I I think
1: uh, similarly, I think um, vice a life of, you know, indulgence and connected to um, f- falsity and, and false belief. I mean, the, these things um, we think oftentimes, well, it's okay. Everybody has some beliefs that are off. Um, the relationship of truth to, to evil and the demonic, you know, in terms of truth versus untruth and idolatry um, is uh, something scripture has everywhere, in terms of talking about the 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 demonic and evil consequences and that you know these these things come from the father of lies right these things are not things that have to do with the one who is true and and being in truth but falsity and untruth and i think any false connection we have Um, with reality is an aspect of the fall but is participating in something of the demonic in some sense and this is why being anchored in truth um, being filled with the light um, walking in the light as he is in the light is so uh, so emphasized in scripture that it's It's nothing we can shake off, even in a world in which we accept that a lot of people believe uh, bad things. We could probably understand why we're in the moral situation we are in the church and in our culture when we start to see how tolerant we are of untruth and falsity, um, much less you know how much the demonic just runs around in that atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should wrap it up here. Uh, We got (laughs) got to about that time.
0: Anyway, uh, thanks, Glenn, uh, for introducing the topic and getting us thinking about it. Well, uh, thank you, too, for uh, actually getting to the end of another show, of The Theology Podcast. We are grateful that uh, people have an interest in what we talk about, and we're grateful, too, to the folks who support us on Patreon and through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and some folks who just go way out of their way to just give us support in financial and uh, other ways. Uh, So thank you for all of that. Uh, We depend on it. Anyway, uh, it's about time to wrap things up. Uh, We'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.